Relationships are the foundation for change. Sometimes it takes love, care, or attention of just one person to help another change for the better. I think this is absolutely foundational to our coaching because specifically we have the opportunity to be that one person. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's J.R. Flatter. I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. He and I just got back from a family wedding in Puerto Rico. (laughs) Survived. I forget what degree it was when we left, but we got back to the mainland states. It was 26 degrees. It was like an 80-degree swap. So this is building a coaching culture. And today we wanted to talk about this idea of neuroscience. We hear a lot about it. We talk a lot about it in class. What is it? How does it impact our coaching? And what does it mean to us as coaches? So that's what we're going to spend the next few minutes together. So as always, our audience is leaders of complex organizations competing and succeeding in the 21st century labor market in this hyper-competitive world. How can coaching and building a coaching culture help them? So let's talk a little bit about neuroscience coaching. And we talk a lot about the different kinds of coaches. So leadership coaches, executive coaches, life coaches. From where we are, where we teach and practice, the fundamentals of coaching remain the same. And where does one choose to focus their coaching? So a lot of what we teach are the fundamentals of coaching, the tools of coaching, and then some real-world case studies. But neurocoaching, neuroscience coaching, is a separate and distinct specialization, achieving a lot of the same objectives that we would be familiar with, happiness, well-being, success, personal and professional, but using specific tools, exercises, and interventions that are using the brain, using the functions of the brain to achieve the outcomes they want to achieve. So neuroscience, which is is also uh, known as neural science, is a study of the nervous system, but specifically focused on the brain and the brain's impact on behavior, the brain's impact on cognitive function. One thing that I'd like to point out I'll probably say it again and again. We don't need to be neuroscientists, nor do we need to be trained in neuroscience coaching specifically to use the brain's processes in our coaching. Just one simple example, the study of procrastination, which we have case studies in procrastination. We talk about procrastination in our training and how can we coach people through self-discovery. Behind all of that, behind procrastination is an aspect of behavioral neuroscience. So again, here's this intersection of a very complex brain activity, and we're using the tools of coaching and the functioning of the brain to help get past those challenges to achieve that self-discovery. And when I think about my comfort level in neuroscience and the function of the brain, I draw a lot of analogy between the other boundaries in our life as coaches. So any of us who's been coaching for any length of time at all knows there are boundaries between coaching and therapy, counseling and coaching, 
when we're in professions that have reporting requirements, law enforcement, clergy, legal, medical, we have those boundaries. My understanding of the functioning of the brain is another one of those boundaries that I'm working with while I'm coaching. And you kind of know when you're getting to your boundaries and when you might need to suggest other resources that might be available, keep coaching, but suggest other resources, maybe suggest a neuroscience coach. What are your thoughts, Lucas, as you we start down this path? Just that um, we definitely think about you know our physical bodies in a certain way, like, okay, we can train ourselves to get better at things, better at sports and exercise and things. But you have that physical limitation in mind. Whereas when you're thinking about, you know, your mind, you almost think that there's no limitations and, you know, I can kind of control that. But there are some biological facts and properties about your mind and it helps to approach it as if it's just another thing that you need to train and be deliberate with. So I like this whole intersection. Now you you remind me of, as I was getting ready for this conversation, I pulled up a few books and um, we talk about David Goggins a lot. Highly recommend this book, You Can't Hurt Me. And don't read it if you're not comfortable with the F-bomb because it's about you know twice or three times a page. It's not a book for small children. But he talks about amongst all of the lessons that he learned, the, the brain and, and the brain's function and how to overcome some of those, like you said, physical challenges, but also mental challenges. And my greatest takeaway from that topic is, from his book is that most human beings consider themselves fully exhausted at 40% of their actual capacity. And that other 60% to get the physical from your body, you first have to get it from your brain. Your brain has to say, yeah, we can do this or yeah, we can make it through this. And like a lot of things in life, athletics, music, languages, you know, some people are gifted, have strong brains, strong self-efficacy, strong confidence, but all of us can work on that and, and strengthen our belief in ourselves, strengthen the idea that, yeah, we can get past this. One of the things you and I talk about a lot is jumping off the 10-meter tower, and it's as much a mental exercise as it is a physical exercise. Coaching is certainly every time you have a session, you're jumping off that tower again and gaining additional confidence and additional capabilities, growing your brain, connecting neural paths in your brain that weren't there before. We do a lot of role-playing in our coaching and in our training, and one of the reasons role-playing is such a strong tool is it actually creates neural paths in your brain that weren't there before you practiced. We'll talk about that later on when we get into this article that we're going to highlight in a few minutes. When I was studying neuroscience, I certainly have no expertise in this area, but in curiosity, we talk about lifelong growth in our training, being lifelong learners. So one of the areas I was digging into a little bit was this idea of neuroscience and how does it impact coaching? How should it impact our training that you and I deliver? I came across this amazing article by Dr. Sarah McKay. The article is Seven Principles of Neuroscience That Every Coach and Therapist Should Know. So I wanted to take some time to walk through this. And you and I can have a little dialogue back and forth, I hope. Of your understanding as a coach, as a human being, as a leader, as a father, a husband. So Sarah, Dr. McKay, is an Oxford University-educated neuroscientist, currently the director of Neuroscience Academy, 
and author of The Woman's Brain Book, talking about the neuroscience of health, hormones, and happiness. So I just want to take the next several minutes and, and walk us through this one by one, and then we'll wrap it up at the end. So point number one from Dr. McKay's article, both nature and nurture win. So both your genetics, the DNA that was handed down to you from your parents, and your environment that you're in, where you're living, how you're learning, who you're living with, the education that you're getting, interact in the brain to shape our brains and influence our behaviors. So for me, I guess what Dr. McKay is saying is it's environment and learning. It's where you came from, but also where you've been. And therapy and our coaching can be thought of as strategic and purposeful environmental tools to facilitate change and maybe an effective means of shaping neural pathways. So we are just talking about that a minute ago, these neural pathways. We rehearse in music. We rehearse in athletics. We talk about our approach to coaching. We actually have an approach template. And so almost all athletes have an approach as they get ready to perform. They practice that in their mind and they practice it in their, their physical activities because they're creating muscle memory and neural pathways. So what are your thoughts on nature and nurture? You're a father raising young son. Yeah, and, and I guess I was thinking of it from the perspective of, like, as an adult, you don't really think about, like, oh, what what environment am I in? How is my nurture currently? You think about it when you're a kid and how you grew up and things, but it's like you can say, when I'm with this group of people, I have these certain thoughts and emotions, and when I'm, you know, at school, I have these so thinking about like putting yourself in an environment that will like lead you towards your goals is something that it's hard to do it deliberately. And I don't know if a lot of people are thinking like that. No, that's amazing. I had never thought of it that way. To some extent, the roles that we play in the different environments we're in, but I think what you're saying, put my coaching hat on for a second, is that when you're in those environments, they're shaping the nurturing. I do remember it, I'm badly paraphrasing that each of us are an aggregate of the five people that are closest to us in our behaviors and our thoughts. So that's probably directly related to Dr. McKay's both nature and nurture win. So it's not an either or, it's a, a balance of both. Oh, yeah. And you think about, um, oh, I don't want my children to be around this group of people because they're bad influences. It's like, Think about like when you've made good decisions and bad decisions and like where you were and who you were with and what you were thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And also, uh, we use a lot of psychometric tools in our practice, both 360 assessments and personality profiles. And depending on who you ask, those personality profiles especially are locked into your DNA. But I think if we look at this, and something that we teach is that your preferences are not your destiny. And so if you do prefer something, whether it came from nature or nurture, you can certainly change that. One of the self-limiting perceptions we hear a lot are things like, I'm not a morning person, or I'm not good with people, or I'm an introvert. And if it is a balance of nature and nurture, that would just strengthen my thoughts that, yeah, there's something we can do about that. You're not locked in. Number two, experiences transform the brain. The networks of our brain associated with our emotions and memories she talks about a lot of very specific cortex, amygdala, hippocampus, are not hardwired. I think this is incredibly insightful. She calls them plastic. 
with the brain pruning and tuning its connection in response to the experiences it has. And I think uh, she's specifically focusing on the brain, not us, the, the human with the brain, but the brain's experiences. I guess if I were to draw an analogy here, I would think like AI, whether we know it or not, our brain is getting better. It's getting smarter. It's creating clearer paths, throwing out some of the stuff we don't need, collecting the, the stuff that we do need. Going back to you know Malcolm Gladwell talking about you need 10,000 reps. Well, you know, as I read this and, and we talk more about this seven points, those 10,000 reps are as much physical as they are mental, pruning and tuning our brain as we do the music reps, the coaching reps, the athletic reps. Yeah, I think this is one of those things that comes up intuitively a lot, like, oh, uh, you should go do this. That would be good for you. Or, you know, like, or even like rites of passage, like certain things that we expect people to experience that that's going to help them mature or like grow. And also I think about activities like reading and does it really matter what you're reading as long as you are reading and you're creating that activity exercise, if you will, in your brain, probably doesn't matter to your brain at all what you're reading. It's the fact that you are exercising your brain. I was um, listening to this song yesterday and they say, use imagination as a destination. And I like that, but it, it sounds kind of dorky, but it's true. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, um, yeah, like reading and experiencing you know those things from other people's perspectives yeah yeah number three memories are imperfect probably not a lot a surprise to a lot of us at the top level that our memories are not perfect we forget where we put our keys forget where we parked our car at the airport i've gotten in the habit of taking pictures of exactly where i'm at not even trying to remember let's dig into this a little bit our memories are never a perfect account of what happened. We rewrite them each time we recall them. That's why the fish gets bigger, the weather gets hotter, whatever the story we're telling, we're contributing that artistic license purposely, perhaps, but not purposely. A question, a photograph, or a particular scent can interact with the memory, resulting in it being modified as it's recalled. I think that's incredibly insightful that right in that moment, you might smell a smell, and perhaps this is related to this idea of deja vu, right? I've been here before. It looks and sounds and smells so familiar. There are increasing life experiences. I just recently turned 60 years old. More and more life experiences. We're weaving these narratives together in our memories, pulling from here, pulling from there. So the autobiographical memories that we have that tell the story of our lives are always undergoing revision precisely because our sense of self is under constant revision. And I think this is terribly important to you and I in our coaching worlds because that's what we do when we're coaching, undergoing revisions of our sense of self, not us specifically perhaps, but the leader that we're working with, using behavioral coaching, using perceptual coaching. Consciously or not, we use the imagination to reinvent our past and with it, our present and our future. So when I see that bullet, I think of Marian Franklin. One of the things she asks of us in laser-focused coaching, I have it in my bookshelf, but not right here in front of me, is to not take at face value what the leader is telling us. Not that we think they're obfuscating, but that the way they're remembering it may very well be 
impacted by this memories are imperfect neuroscience aspect, reinventing our present, past, and future. The thing that um, jumps out to me is like when you're having an argument or a discussion and and you have this memory of of events and the other person has another memory of events and it's the most productive thing is to just you know say okay this is how we feel now and and how are we going to work through it because neither of you are correct on on like your memory you know so <laughs> yeah if you think about law enforcement one of the least reliable pieces of evidence is an eyewitness they could swear and you could ask three people we're looking at exactly the same thing you know, five foot seven, five foot two, six foot three, different ethnicities, different genders. It's not that they're obfuscating or they're trying to implicate someone. That's what their brain is telling them. And that's what they're telling the law enforcement person. Number four, motion underlies memory formation. I think these last few are really getting into the cool stuff that's so relevant to our coaching. Memories and emotions are interconnected neural processes. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. Until I read this the first time, I think this is the first time I'd ever had someone put those two dots together for me. So my memories and my emotions, either today or from the memory, are interconnecting these neural processes. The amygdala, the brain, which plays a role in our emotional arousal, mediate neurotransmitters essential for memory consolidation. Okay. (laughs) Emotional arousal has the capacity to activate the amygdala, which in turn modulates the storage of memory. So if I think I'm reading this right, my emotions from an activity or an event are going to influence how well this memory is stored. Research suggests that each of us constructs emotions from a diversity of sources. Our psychological state, our reactions to the outside environment, our experiences, our learning, our culture, and our upbringing. You know, this goes back to one of the earlier ones, nature or nurture. All of those things are impacting this formation of a memory. I think about music and how music can add to your emotions. And you even associate certain memories with those. Or we even mentioned earlier, like the smell of, you know, a home-cooked meal or something and, and how that can bring you back. Like, And then I also was thinking about this concept seems a little heady, but then it either speaks to how much research they do or just how intuitive it can be. But in, in that Pixar movie, um, Inside, it's all about, you know, the physical embodiment of, of emotions and how they form memories. So if you want to kind of crash course on that, I would recommend that movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you say that, I'm thinking of specific songwriters or directors of movies take this very fact, this functioning of the brain, and purposely construct their music, purposely construct their movies to do exactly what uh, Dr. McKay is describing here. Trigger those emotions that will trigger our memories that will connect us to the movie. You know, fascinating stuff. And I'm just thinking about, you know, as I listen to music or as I watch a movie, first of all, life's all about memories. A good meal last an hour or two at best, a sporting event, a concert, a marriage, you and I just went to a wedding. But it's really the memory that we'll hold on to. And purposely and not purposely, our brain will go back to those places and emotions will impact our memory of that event. 
Yeah, and like this can speak to like positive and negative reinforcement. It's like you can make your dog or even your child remember a lesson by like scaring them or you know <laughs> making it fun you know <laughs> yeah absolutely i keep reminding myself that this has a lot to do with the, the idea of mindfulness and so as i'm reading this and we're going through this conversation i'm thinking about the you know you and i you went each class we teach we could do a little mindfulness at the very beginning but now we could do this mindfulness to create emotions, to create connections to our memories. So we're going to have to pull that into our mindfulness as we're teaching. Relationships are the foundation for change. Relationships in childhood and adulthood have the power to elicit positive change. Sometimes it takes love, care, or attention of just one person to help another change for the better. The therapeutic relationship has the capacity to help clients modify neural systems, and enhance emotional regulation. I think this number five is absolutely foundational to our coaching because specifically we have the opportunity to be that one person. We're not a significant other in their life. We're not in their work life. We are there specifically to give them love, care, attention. We talk about one of the competencies of a coach is to create trust and safety. And whether or not you call that trust and safety love, it is a form of love. We are demonstrating care. We talk about intellectual curiosity. We talk about a genuine concern in the growth of the leaders who we're working with to help them change for the better. However, they define better because it's their house of leadership they're building, not ours. What do you see here? Yeah, well, you kind of think about, you know, when you're coaching someone and and you're kind of helping them come up with new ideas and even like change their mind about certain things just through you know self-reflection so it's funny that like changing your mind is like seen as such a negative but like in our coaching profession it's like that's that's the goal it's like change your mind change your beliefs change your emotions then get the results from changing your behavior you've just reminded me of a conversation i had yesterday picked up a new leader yesterday who wanted to be coached and whenever you're coaching someone, there's always a likelihood and very much likelihood they are going to change their mind. And some of those changes can be life-changing, career, where they live, what their life vision is. And as we go into a coaching relationship, I try to be as explicit as possible that you know, everything's on the table. So some of the notions, the preconceived notions that you've had about your own life, perhaps even for your entire life, they might disappear. They might be transformed. And you have to be open to that reality, that likelihood. And it's all through this relationship that you and I form when we coach. This, I think, for me, is the most fascinating of all seven. Number six, imagining and doing are pretty much the same thing to the brain. I mean, that just blew my mind the first time I looked at that. So imagining a putt, imagining playing a song, Imagining jumping off the 10-meter tower is largely the same thing to your brain. So you know, first and foremost, it just exponentially increases my uh, belief in rehearsals, uh, role-playing, practice. Envisioning a different life may as successfully invoke change as the actual experience. That's, that's incredible. 
Yeah, like I, I'm a believer in this in, in terms of just being, having played lots of video games and having these like experiences, you have those memories and those emotions and, and even things from my childhood. But I'm like, well, that wasn't real. But I still, it's part of like the mythology of, you know, what you're thinking about and, you know, what you're going through at the time. So I guess I never really think about this in terms of my choices of, oh, what am I going to read next or what am I going to watch next? But you could think about it that way. Like, do I need to be in a happy emotional state or do I need to go through some challenging emotions to get through the next thing that I'm going through in life? So you could be deliberate about, you know, what you're exposing yourself to in terms of entertainment. Yeah, that's pretty powerful stuff. And again, you, you've just coached me because I never put those two things together that the experiences of gameplay or the experiences of even of listening to music, imagining where you might be and what you might be doing is actually given an opportunity for memory and emotions and strengthening the brain. That's pretty cool stuff. I'm thinking about the impact that this might have on our coaching and some of the exercises you might try. One of the ones that you and I use a lot is the miracle question. And the miracle question is directly related to number six. And it comes from the field of psychiatry. And it's, if you woke up tomorrow, there's many ways to ask it, but if you woke up tomorrow and a miracle had occurred, what does that look like? Where are you? Who's with you? What have you accomplished? And what I'd always thought about previous to reading this article is that it was physical barriers. It was actual barriers. But now reading number six, it's also telling us just thinking about that place is creating the same responses in your brain and learning in your brain as if you had actually been there. So it's, you know, to some extent, you were there. You are on the other side of that miracle. I have this trigger that I can make my adrenaline pump. It's just, especially if I have like a race coming up, if I just imagine myself like about to be at the starting line, I get like nervous, sweaty, you know, adrenaline. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a good thing and a bad thing if you can learn to control it, right? Number seven, we don't always know what our brain is thinking. So one of the things you and I teach is unconscious bias, and we teach about coaching beyond unconscious bias, making the unconscious conscious. So Dr. McKay is telling us unconscious processes exert great influence on our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. She's not willing to put a percentage on how much is subconscious, probably not really relevant. The brain can process nonverbal and unconscious information. Yeah, we all know that. Way somebody looks at us, the expression, their body language. And such information influences therapeutic and other relationships, other being us coaches. It's possible to react to unconscious perceptions without consciously understanding the reaction. So when your eyebrows perk up or you sit up in your seat, I'm reminded as I read this a couple of things. Barbara Gustafson came on our podcast a few weeks ago. She actually came to our coffee and, and talked about this book. Your brain is always listening, even when you don't know it. And then Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, that we have a fast brain and a slow brain. I think of those things when I look at, we don't always know what our brain is thinking. You and I teach the terror quotient, the unconscious, what tribe is this person from? What are my expectations of them? What rank are they compared to me and me compared to them? Not just a military rank, but age, ethnicity, gender, many other things, education, and then autonomy. How much freedom are they going to give me? And then pushing that Terra fast brain, as Dr. Kahneman would say, into our 
slow brain and really stopping to think about, make it a, a conscious thought. What do you think here at number seven? I think about like all this, you know, unintuitive, all these unintuitive properties about the world, like probability, like it's hard to convince yourself of some of these things about like, oh, if I roll a dice, it's going to be the same probability the next time as it as it is any other time. But your brain will tell you, oh, no, it's it's going to be good this time. You know, it's been it's been heads five times in a row. It's got to be tails <laughs> next time. And just like, yeah, like how biases can also be, you know, determined by your environment. Like we were talking about um, the sunk cost fallacy in, in a business class I was in. And so the, the idea that like, oh, I've put $100 into this, so I might as well keep investing in it. But you're going to answer that question different depending on whether you're the boss or whether you're an employee. It's your money. It's your friend's money. Like what we were talking about, about it, relationships and environments, that can affect like what you're thinking and how you're feeling. Yeah, very much so. Neuroscience and perceptions and behaviors, we kind of indirectly talked about this. Now let's just take a few minutes, if you don't mind, to focus on perceptions and behaviors and, and how the brain from our perspective as coaches, not neuroscientists, we teach perception. What is it? How does it influence? And perceptual coaching, how do you change perceptions? And a lot of what we talk about when we talk about perceptions are self-limiting perceptions. Beliefs a person has about themselves that might be limiting their activities in the world. But also if you look at it from the, the opposite side, it's the world's perceptions of you and how that determines their impact their interaction with you as a person, as an employee, as a potential life partner, and how real those perceptions are, both to us and the world looking at us and interacting with us. And if you think about how can we go about changing those perceptions, and as I look at these seven points from Dr. McKay, and I think about my coaching, our coach training, nature and nurture, where did they come from? Where did they live? Where did they grow up? What was the culture and how can we impact some of those things? Looking forward to grow, not looking backward to heal. And then the natural interaction between perceptions and behavior. So if I perceive I'm not a morning person, I'm not going to schedule my athletics in the morning. I'm not going to schedule meetings in the morning. If you perceive I'm not a morning person, you're going to stay away from me in the morning. So it impacts your behavior. It impacts my behavior. But then to link this back to the brain, the idea that imagining is just as strong as doing a lot more role play, a lot more miracle questions to purposely introduce imagination. I go back to thinking about, you know, the memories, you know, everybody has a relative degree of like traumatic experiences or, you know, super happy experiences. But if you look back on, you hear people say like, oh, everything happens for a reason, right? And and maybe that's not like objectively true, but if you look back on something that happened to you, you can kind of reframe it and perceive it to be, you know, I perceive that to have brought me to where I am now, so I feel better about it now. I just wanted to take an opportunity to look at all seven of these and see what, what uh, relationships we can do or what growth in our own coaching methodologies or our own training methodologies, perceptions and behaviors, both nature and nurture experiences transform the brain introducing experiences memories are imperfect so not accepting absolute face value what the leader's telling us emotions underlie memory foundations so 
you and I talk a lot in our coaching and our coach training about coach the person and not the problem. And then we ask questions when we are coaching the person, how does that make you feel right now? To hear yourself say that or to hear me say that or to have that memory. Relationships are the foundation for change. Going back to our core competencies of coaching, imagining and doing are pretty much the same thing. Only for me, exponentially increases role play, rehearsals. And we don't always know what our brain th- is thinking. You know, when I think about the powerful questions that we borrow from Bungay Stanier, and he has the awe question, and what else? And what else? And it might seem a bit formulistic, but to me, it speaks directly to number seven. Let's continue to explore until we really find out what your brain is thinking. I'll think about a person's, like, how are they feeling about things? What are their emotions about things? And But you don't often think about, like, okay, what are their relationships with the people around them? Like, oh, um, is there anybody around you that can help you with this particular issue? But you might, as a coach, sometimes I think about that in, like, a transactional way. Like, oh, go to this person for this information. But thinking about it from the relationship way, like, okay, what is their relationship with this person? Do they need to build up a relationship with, you know, new people? So that's kind of a takeaway I'm getting from this. And finally, emotional intelligence. So you and I talk a lot about this in our coach training, try to use it in our coaching. For me, this entire seven points in this entire idea of neuroscience, and when you listen to Barbara talk about her coaching practice and healing the brain, before you can even engage in a meaningful discussion of that, you have to have a pretty strong level of emotional intelligence and be willing and able to accept those new ways of looking at perennial challenges. So for me, in many ways, emotional intelligence is the foundation of this entire topic, how neuroscience and coaching come together. And they come together at the intersection of emotional intelligence. For me, recognizing both nature and nurture, recognizing your brain is not static, as Dr. McKay says, it's plastic, moldable, changeable. Recognizing that your memories are imperfect, even from this morning, certainly from your childhood. And recognizing that emotion underlies memory formation. And number six, especially, imagining and doing are pretty much the same thing. That still blows my mind. We don't always know what our brain is thinking. All require this exponential emotional intelligence. When we talk about it, usually we talk about the technical intelligence, the cognitive intelligence. Technical, can you do the fundamentals of your profession? Cognitive, can you collect data, conduct analysis, make decisions? Foundational, when we think about our coaching and our coaching practices, it really comes down to the E, the emotional intelligence. Have you ever seen one of those, um, it's like, based on these, this skeleton, um, scientists have determined that a dinosaur looks like this and it's like oh based on the skeleton of a rhino they might expect that he looks like this it's like the thoughts and ideas and you know the neuroscience is kind of like the scaffolding and then you know you need the emotions and the scaffolding to kind of get the full experience otherwise you're going to get some wonky weird animal from your nightmares (laughs) (laughs) all right Cool conversation. I know we've only scratched the surface, and hopefully, there's no neuroscientists out there that are pounding their head on the table. I hope oh, there is. So I can don't come understand on. any of this. <laughs> 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 all right, my friend, starting a boot camp tomorrow. So, going to be locked up all weekend teaching a 30 hour boot camp. I love doing it, though. 
What do you got going on this weekend? Nothing big. Next week, I'm looking forward to seeing James Cameron's Avatar 2. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was on the top of my list, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Talk to you later. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.